0: Well, hey, good morning. My name is Mark. I'm the executive pastor here. I want to welcome you also. Um, You know, I don't know what the last few weeks and months have been like in your world. I'll just be honest. Uh, It's been a time that that my heart has just been pretty heavy. It it just seems like an extraordinary amount of of people that I'm connected to that are going through some, some really tough things, some... Some marriages that are in, a, in really tough spots. Um, you know, some family members that have, that have passed away or people that people have been close to that they've had to say goodbye to. And um, maybe the ones that, that have been the hardest for me are a few of my friends that are, that are dealing with things with infants or with uh, miscarriages and that sort of thing. It's uh, really close to our heart and it just, um, it's just hard. It's just, it's just hard to watch friends going through these sorts of things. I've got a, a friend that, um, a little girl that's a newborn, and even before she was born, uh, they had already diagnosed her with this, with this illness that every day that she breathes and makes it another day is just miraculous. They, they didn't expect her to make her make it to, to birth, and now every day is a, a miracle. Um, and, you know, that family is just you know, at the hospital, just there with her, and uh, another family who, they, they're missionaries, that they, they came back stateside to have the baby. And uh, this little boy was born, and everything seemed fine. And then he just, he just seemed to have trouble breathing. And they got him into the hospital, and they've been in ICU ever since. And the doctor has just given the diagnosis of a heart disease that um, they're not even, you know, they're going to have to do more research on even to explain, but what they know so far is it's just it's got a high fatality rate and you know e- again each day is a miracle and they're in for a, a life change uh, maybe moving back from living overseas just because of uh, you know doctor care and um, and he's just in a, in a chaotic spot trying to figure out what to do with it all and <laughs> it's just heavy you know it's just reminders of this this broken world that, that we live in and uh, the results of the fall and some decisions that we make and some that we had no control over and just, it, they just it's, it's broken. And sometimes you look in the middle of those situations and you, you go looking for where God is in the middle of this and it's hard to see. I remember probably seven years ago, Terry and I were really asking the Lord for uh, another child, which is ironic now because we got twins in the end, but... Uh, but it wasn't happening, and we were dealing with that, and I remember being in a in a gym um, with some some guys, a group of guys that I was trying to disciple. I was trying to help them grow in their faith, and I remember the minute that I was like, I just broke and said, um, I know I'm trying to help you guys grow in your faith, but I got to be honest right now. I'm struggling in mine. <laughs> I need you guys to I need you guys to remind me that, that God is real and that he's here and that he's moving because I'm, I've lost sight of it in this moment and all I'm seeing is black. And um, just open up the door for those guys to speak back truth and life to me because I had lost sight of it. And th- those moments are really, really difficult. And as, we're, as we start this study of Esther, it's just interesting to me uh, I get the privilege of getting to, you know, kind of start this thing out and give the big picture of what Esther is and work through the first two chapters today. And if you've read the story of Esther, if you haven't, you totally should. If you, if you have or seen the movie, you kind of know how this story ends and Charlie's going to get to have fun with, with all of that. But I want to I kind of set this stage with just kind of the trivia fact about Esther that God is not mentioned in this book just interesting. It's the only book in the Bible that God has not mentioned. Actually, Song of Solomon he has mentioned once. And we're just coming out of Song of Solomon into into this book where, where, where he is not mentioned. His fingerprints and his presence, if you'll look for it, are all over these pages and over this story. But he's not directly mentioned once. And so like with Song of Solomon, we had to ask the question, hey, why is this book in here? I mean, this steamy book that seems like it should be somewhere else and not in God's word, you know, we ask the questions for a month. I mean, why? It says something about our God that Song of Solomon is there. And it says something about our God that Esther and this story is here. And so my hope and prayer as we work through this is that we'll, we'll see that and, uh, and get the heart of why God put it in the scriptures now, to kind of give the setting, this, uh, this story is set hundred years after the Babylonian exile of the Jews from their land in the Persian capital of, of Susa, and a remnant had, um, had moved back to Jerusalem, but there were a whole lot of the Jews that were still living in Persia, And this is even against what God had commanded. And in Zechariah, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah chapter 6, and this is what he said to this group that was still living in Persia even after so many had returned. He says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens um, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This is the group, this is the setting of this story. This is the story of this people who have not obeyed this command and they are still in Babylon. Interesting. Uh, I'll kind of give you the the quick recap of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then we'll pick out a few specific points. So I'll give my rendition of the story. You can go back and read it. But what you've got, you've got this, this king of Persia, Xerxes, and uh, if you remember much about Xerxes or studied him, he's a pretty, pretty harsh king, and a pretty had a pretty big god complex. And so he throws a party just to show off his wealth and greatness. And this party lasts 180 days. Now that's a party, <laughs> right? A six-month party to show off your greatness. Brings all of his officials together, spares no expense. Then after that, he throws a seven-day after-party for all the normal folks because that's just, you know, how, how cool he is. And at this party, they drink from, from gold cups. And the command of the king is, uh, give everybody wine and don't stop. They don't, they don't don't stop. Don't give them as much as they possibly want. Now his queen Vashti, she also throws a party for the women at the, in the in the palace, and the king asks for Vashti to come and show off her beauty in in his party, and he says make sure she comes in her in her crown. And we really don't know from the wording of this, does that mean, like, she didn't have her crown on and make sure she wears her crown when she comes to the party? Or did he mean she needs to come in only her crown? I don't know. But whatever it was, Vashti didn't like the idea, and she said, no, I'm not going to do it. To which Xerxes says, whoa, but I'm the king. And all of his officials go, you're the king. And if your wife doesn't do what you say... Our wives won't do what we say. So we got to do something about this and drop the hammer really hard. And so they get together in their drunken state because it said that he was very happy with wine, which just means he was lit. They're trying to make this decision and they decide that, um, that Vashti, the command's going to go out, that Vashti can no longer be in the presence of the king and that her crown will be taken from her and given to another that's more deserving of it. So... They start going out all through the land to find young virgins who might take her place. And out there in the land, there is this Jewish girl named Esther. And she is with her cousin. Her parents have passed away, and her cousin is raising her. her his name is Mordecai. And she is brought into the harem of the king. Now Mordecai had told her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Keep, keep that quiet. That's going to come up later in the story. But he, he said that to stay silent. Um, but she's brought into the harem of the king, and when she gets her knight in his chambers, the king says she's the most beautiful and wonderful of all the virgins, and he calls her now the queen and places the crown upon her head. Now, Mordecai is, uh, is out by the gates, and he just happens to hear a few of the officials planning an assassination of the king. And now that that Esther is planted with the king, he, he slips that knowledge to Esther. Esther tells the king when it's found out to be true and they, they get these guys and impale them and kill them and Mordecai is given all the credit for saving the king's life. All right, so, so that's kind of the backstory. Now, there's a few things I want to point out here uh, for us this morning. First of all, they are living in a very godless place. If you look at verse 1 and 2, it says this happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over the, 100, uh, the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This, this Xerxes, uh, like I said, he's a harsh king, uh, mostly known for his massive invasion of Greece. If you've seen the movie 300, that uh, crazy character that's really tall and thinks he's God, and uh, this this is this this Xerxes. Uh, the things he's known for are not pretty. So just kind of <laughs> when we think about this scene, you know, sometimes it's been painted really colory and rosy and kind of sounds like Song of Solomon chapter two. This is not this is not King Solomon. This. This is Xerxes. He is, he is not a, a nice guy. He's not kind. He's not doing kind things. He is a very harsh, mean ruler, bent on destruction. Okay? So that's who we're talking about here. So this is a very godless place under his control and his rule. And then if you look at uh, verse 5 and 6, Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew. This is when we're introduced to Mordecai of the tribe of Benjamin. Named Mordecai. In verse 6. Among those taken captive with Jehoiakim. King of Judah. So he was taken captive. And again like I said a second ago. He has remained there. Now why, why did the group rem, remain there? So some went back but, uh, to the promised land. But some have, have stayed. Well. For most of these, a lot of these, they had found favor in, that, in, the, in the city. They had taken positions of affluence. And they were, they were doing pretty well. And even though God had commanded them to return, they're like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm okay where I am. I, I think I'll just stay here. Mordecai evidently is, is one of these people. Also, it, it gives us his name Mordecai, which is his Persian name that he was given. It's the name for their deity, Marduk, which was one of the main deities that they worshipped. And we don't even get Mordecai's Jewish name. We only get his given Persian name after this, this deity. So that tells us something about this, this Mordecai. In fact, we don't really know. It's not told to us who the writer of Esther is, but there's a lot that assume that Mordecai wrote the book, and maybe that's one of the reasons That God is not mentioned in this book because Mordecai doesn't seem to be a man of strong faith. Right, so they're living in this godless place, and some of that is because of the decisions that they have made to stay there. Uh, About I don't know, maybe two years ago, um, Charlie and I. There's a kind of a group of churches that we're loosely connected to, and so you know, uh, they sometimes will have church conferences, and they had one in Vegas. which we had the same reaction. We're like, can you have a church conference in Vegas? Those, this, obviously, this place that is kind of deemed as the godless, you know, sinful place, can you actually also have a church conference of any <laughs> consequence in that same place? And so we, we decided to go. Of course, we wanted to check it out and see if it was true. Um, we, we get there, and the host church, the pastor of that church, is one of the first guys to speak. And it was just amazing because as he started to tell this story, one, he had some crazy stories about what it looks like to have a church in Vegas. He, he told one about um, one Sunday morning, um, there was a guy in, back on the back row that everybody around him just assumed that he was dead. I mean, they had just decided this, this guy's dead. And... What's amazing to me, and this would, I guess this would only happen in Vegas, it, this morning, if there was somebody sitting next to you that you thought was dead, would you wait to the end of the service to go tell somebody? Well, evidently in Vegas they do, because they waited to the end of the service, and then on the way out, they just kind of told the usher, hey, I think there's a dead guy in there. <laughs> and they go back in, and he said, luckily he was passed out, but everybody assumed he was dead. <laughs> then they told another story about somebody that had some kind of beef with the church, and it was a really big place. And this guy took his car and drove it through the front doors and was cutting cookies like in the open area. And I think he ended up running at it on the stage or something, just crazy. Uh, But then as he started to explain this, this church... And the impact that they were having, and the way that God was using them as salt and light in this, this really dark place. There was this beautiful, redemptive thing that was happening that was really, really inspiring to me in this very dark place that you would look at it and go, Man, is God even present here? And then when you hear the story and back up, and, and you see, Oh, man, he's working. He's working. Mordecai and Esther have found themselves in a godless place, but that doesn't mean that God isn't working. They are uh, living with a godless past. You know, one thing we don't talk about a lot with Esther, she is, I mean, her mother and father have, have died. She's coming from a really hard situation. Her, her cousin is, is raising her, and she's in this, this really tough, oppressive place. Uh, verse 7 says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. So remember a minute ago I said that we don't have Mordecai's Jewish name. We only get his Persian name. But with Esther, we get her Jewish name, Hadassah, which I think is also translated Myrtle. So we could have just named this book Myrtle. But uh, No, uh, from uh, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother... This young woman was also known as, her name was Hadassah, but she was known as Esther. So just side note, if you see Esther in heaven, don't call her Esther, call her H- Hadassah, because that's, that's who she is. But she's known in this, in this place as Esther, which is uh, translated star, um, but really it goes back to the deity, uh, the goddess Venus, so also named after one of the gods of the Persians. She had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her his own, his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So this girl Esther is coming from a really broken, hard past. And unlike maybe some of these things with Mordecai, that he's making a decision to stay, she, she, these are things that were outside of her control that have happened to, to her family. And now she finds herself in a hard spot. And you would look at her and go, man, where is God in the middle of that? You know, this reminds me uh, kind of my family story. My, my father's father uh, died when he was six years old. And his mother, um, just because of that and several other things that were going on in their life, she was just not mentally stable to, to care for my father. And so he was just basically, you know, six, seven, eight years old, just, just running wild, doing whatever he wanted to do. And his sister and her husband took my, my father in, in a town that was not too far away. And they took him in and let him live with them. And uh, I was just thinking about this recently. I mean, there there's so many attributes of my dad that are just amazing to me. His, his character, his work ethic, um, just everything, man. His love for us. There's just so many things that I, I look at my dad and they're just amazing to me. And Um, I want them to be true of me as a father and want them to be true of me as a man and want to pass them to my boys. Well, he didn't get that from his father. He got that from his sister's husband, who we call Uncle Thad. And Uncle Thad opened up his doors and took him in and modeled for him what the life of a godly man looked like. And, uh, And to this day, it's Uncle Thad that we look back to and go, man, in the middle of something chaotic and hard and dark and broken, Here's this person that God brought into his life that changed the story. Changed the story for us. And so here's uh, Esther in this really difficult place with this really difficult past, and yet God is moving in the middle of it. They are living among a a godless people. And this is the part of the story that that we like to clean up a bit. Maybe the VeggieTales version is a little bit cleaner than... And what's really going on here, we've got these, all these virgins that are coming and he's making his choice and going through them and picking which one he wants. And the way he picks which one he wants is that they go through all these beauty treatments uh, for, for this long period of time for their one night that they get to be with him. And then they're with him all night and then he decides the next day whether he ever wants to see them again. Look at the way it's worded, verse 13 and 14. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted, this is any of these virgins, anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem. Remember, she's in a harem under the control of a eunuch in the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of uh, Shezgez, uh the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. This is how she's described. She's living in a harem among the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. She didn't just get to go in and out. If he decided she was worthy to come in again, he could call her. This was a really, really hard place. Going in in the evening and leaving in the morning, you can use your imagination. This was with this harsh king and this harsh place. This wasn't fun. This was a very broken, uh, ugly situation in a, in a godless group of people. And here she is in the middle of it. What is, you know, if you know the end of the story, you know how God uses it. If you just take this part of the story and you look at it, you, you're forced to ask the question where is He? I, uh, a few years back, I was a chaplain of this, this college football team. And I, I witnessed something that I'd never witnessed before. And I'd been around football my whole life, had played college football, had been on a lot of teams. But I walked out for 2 days in this new town that we were in and I thought, oh, this is a great time. Uh, you know, Caleb wasn't in school yet and I thought, I mean, I'll bring my, my boy out there with me and we'll watch practice and start to get to know the coaches and get to know the players and this will be awesome." football on the side. This will be awesome. And we walk out there and I find myself in, I mean, a minute of being out there that I'm having to cover his ears because from the head coach all the way down to the boy sitting on the bench. Everybody was using all the language, that, all the words, some of them that I'd heard before and some of them that I hadn't. <laughs> and, and it wasn't just that it, was, that it was bad language, but it wasn't like, it, you know, like they were using the bad language to encourage one another or put exclamation points on some point. It was just to bring everybody down. And so a guy would do something and, and he would 90% do it good and the coach would just get all over him for the one little thing that he didn't do right and use, you know, just try to demean him. And I thought, well, okay, well, maybe this is, since it's the beginning of 2 days maybe this is the the boot camp version. You know, maybe they're just going to do that, try to get some guys to go home, and then what they're left over with. So I came back the next day, and I thought, well, it'll get better, so I brought Caleb again. Finally, I had to stop bringing him because the place was just so oppressive and so dark, and it didn't get better the whole season. I I didn't enjoy being around the group because it was so oppressive. And yet, about day four... The guys are walking out of the locker room, and there's this one dude who I... He didn't even have to tell me that he was a Jesus follower, because I saw it. I saw it all over his face. I saw it in his demeanor. He walked out, and it was obvious that God had placed this guy in this room for this purpose... And the rest of that season became about me trying to figure out how to support this guy in this very impressive environment that didn't leave him when he left the practice field because it was in his dorm, it was in every part of his life, and yet he was the one that was going to light it up. And it was just cool. It was the practice one, I wondered, where is God on this field? And then I realized God was working. He had already planted his man there. (laughs) And I had a clear purpose to try to help that guy honor him well. This is a very godless people that God has placed Esther in the middle of in a very godless situation. And yet it is amazing because all along he is working to do something beautiful and has put her in a place to honor him and, uh, and light it up. So even though this is a very dark place, God is no less present and powerful. God is no less present and powerful I don't know what you have going on right now, and you may be asking that very question. Where is God right now? Just because you don't have the eyes to see it doesn't mean that He's not present. Doesn't mean that He's not powerful. Doesn't mean that He's not moving. And if you'll look long enough back on your story, you'll realize that this has happened before. And there are stories like this before, and He showed up then, and He'll show up again. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 13 says, Even when we are faithless, He is faithful because he will not disown himself. This is the God that we serve. You know, in this story, we we already see his fingerprints. We already see him moving, even here right at the beginning, even in all of this darkness. When the king's order, this is verse 8 and 9, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. And look what it says: she she pleased him and won his favor. His favor. Here, let's 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 look at the next one, chapter two, verse fifteen. When the term came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing, which this I think is pretty big because. Um, like I read a minute ago, they were able to take anything that they wanted to from the harem. And Esther was given the wisdom not to take the things that she wanted, but the things that the king would want. And so look what she did. Uh, She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So you see the presence of God's wisdom that she, she asked the guy who would know what the right things to take were, and she took those things. And then it says, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her favor. Uh, Verse 17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She earned favor. She earned favor. She had favor with the eunuch. She had favor with the king. She had favor. It says with everyone. She had this God-ordained supernatural favor. Do you realize that that favor of God rests upon you? That's a really, really, really big deal. It's become something that's just this. Every day when I pray for my family, uh, this is just this is just part of that prayer. That wherever we go, whatever we do, whether it's a hard circumstance or a good circumstance or something that God's wanting to accomplish this, whatever it is, whatever group of people, that he would grant to us his supernatural favor. And I've watched him do it. Have you stepped back long enough to watch that he's done that in your life too? I, I mentioned something to somebody the other day about this guy that I know I have a friendship with in India who, who just happens to be like... The godfather of uh, of these this handicraft production in India and uh, anyway it's just I don't even know how much the dude is worth and I mentioned something about that but then the same person I was talking to uh, has heard me talk before about this uh, this meeting I had with the guy that owns Hobby Lobby and this meeting with us and this guy stopped me and said you realize how many millionaire billionaire people you've talked to. And I had never thought about it. I'm like, it is really interesting. How did I end up in that spot? (laughs) Not because I deserved it, right? Or because uh, there was... But for some reason, God had granted favor and given me audience with these people who I had no business being in this. I remember sitting in one office that the guy was... He set me at the end of the table, and the table was like a, I don't know, like a 20-person like big boardroom table with leather seats and all the stuff. And he sat at the other end... And nobody else was in there but he and I. And I sat there thinking, what am I even doing? When, they, when the elevator, they had to like get a special key and go to the top floor. Like, I shouldn't be in this place. God's favor, I don't know what to do with that. He gives this favor to Esther. And then he also gives it to Mordecai. Look what happens. But Mordecai, verse 22, But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, and the credit was given to Mordecai. For saving the king's life, God's favor, God's blessing, even in the middle of this darkness. So this guy that his his son has got this heart issue, he uh, he calls me this past week, and basically he's just saying, "Man, I'm just asking for some counsel because I don't know what to do. We we got this horrible report that his days, if not numbered." Or this next year, two years are going to be really difficult trying to figure that out and what, what steps to take. Uh, for, for sure, our life is now shifted and changed. I don't know if we should move all of our things back from overseas because, you know, I don't think we, the health is better here and I don't know if we can make that work. And you can just hear all the chaos and confusion. And then he's, <laughs> Mark, what should I do? How do you answer that question? If he called you, what would you say? I'll tell you, it's really interesting that when I finished, I realized why I got the call. Because when I was about a year old, I, uh, I was diagnosed with this disease, and there was this thing that, if not removed, was going to kill me for sure. And um, the doctors finally decided that they would do a surgery that would likely take my life, because it was real volatile, Um, but they were gonna do the surgery anyway because I was gonna die for sure if they didn't do the surgery. My parents uh, called the folks of their church and they came in and and prayed over me. And when they went in before that surgery, they did an x-ray and that thing was gone. And so the first thing I had to tell this guy was, hey brother, be encouraged. Our God still heals and our God is still present. And I'm able to talk to you on the phone today because he's done it before and he he can do it again. He's still alive and he's still moving and he's powerful and he's present in your situation. Then as he was talking about how hard it is to be in the ICU every day and how he was after our phone call he was going to go take a shower because he hadn't had one in five days and still had the same clothes on. Well, when the twins were born, evidently, for nine months, Jack had just been kicking Darcy in the head. And um, she was black and blue and she had some lung issues and so... While it was just a short stint, you know, we did 10 days or so in the ICU, and I understood what that felt like to see your baby with all the wires all over them and checking every and hoping and praying that everything. I knew what that felt like to see your baby in that place so I could identify with him. When we moved uh, overseas, we had sold everything and planned to never come back, and then God orchestrated this thing where we ended up back in the States, and I wondered what in the world, why would he... Why would God do that? That didn't make any sense to me. Why would he do that? So I knew what he felt like, that God was changing the vision for their life, and he doesn't know what to do. We've, we've moved 16 times, so the fear and threat of trying to figure out what moving looks like and all of that chaos, I can identify with that. I've lost a friend that was dear to me, and I know what it feels like to mourn in the threat of death with somebody you really care about. And when we hung up the phone, I realized that, man... All of the hardest moments, most difficult stories of my life, God had just used each one of them to encourage this guy. All of my worst stories, the stories that I wish I could erase from my my history, were the very stories that God was using to change his, his story and to encourage him in that moment. And God wants to do the same thing with your hard moments. He's there, he's present, and he's moving, and he's not asleep He's not gone a wall. He is there. And if you'll look back on your history long enough, you can probably see already some of the ways that he's done that. Or the way that ways that he wants to do it. Maybe some of them, a lot of them we can't. But that doesn't mean it's not true. So as we move into this book of Esther, man, I'm just asking you, let's 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 start there. Let's not try to clean up this story. It, It's a rough spot that Esther finds herself in, but she serves, we serve an incredible God, even in the midst of the brokenness on this planet. So the the worship band is going to come back up and we're going to sing a little bit. I'll ask you during this time, you know, the opportunity to pray at your seat in the back, to take communion, to give. And also, maybe just to consider this, there is no doubt in this room that there's some hard stuff going on. I know some of the stories. There's some hard stuff going on. And I just feel like God wants to say to you this morning that he is very, very present. And he loves you a lot. And he's working for your good and for his glory. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm asking you that you would encourage us today with that, with that word. You are very, very big. And, um, Lord, there are situations that we're in that some we had no control over. Like Esther having no control over um, her, her mother and father being gone. And then there are some decisions that we've made, like Mordecai, where we have chosen to stay in a place that you told us to leave. And we've brought that upon ourselves. And, Father, no matter the cause of the darkness, you are about redemption. And I just ask you that you would uh, encourage us with that and begin that work in us today. Remind us how you are faithful, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, how good and incredible you are. We worship, we worship you, Father. Amen.